Hello. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hi, how's it going, Gabe? Feeling great. Feeling groovy, great, awesome. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show, which you can hear every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBI. That's 99.5 FM, WBI.org. And I'm here with my main man, Gabriel Pacheco. That's right. How's it going, Katie? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm feeling great. So we are interviewing today a very special guest. He's a real lefty lawyer. His name is Ian Samuel. He is a professor at Indiana Law School. He was a Clemenco Fellow and lecturer on law at Harvard Law School and clerked for Justice Scalia. As Whoa. in Anton Scalia, yeah. We're going to ask him about We're that, totally right? Gonna, yeah, he has, he has a lot to answer for. He was also a Bristow Fellow in the Office of the Solicitor General and an appellate litigator in the Justice Department's Civil Division. He has two cats and nearly as many opinions, which can be found on Twitter at I-S-A-M-U-E-L. He's also the host of First Mondays, which is a great podcast on the Supreme Court. So let us now turn to... Ian Samuel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my God, it's such an honor. I've been uh, trying to get an invite for a while, but you got to play these things cool. So I did it by saying nothing. Yeah, we don't like our guests too eager. They have to be uh, very nonchalant. Play yeah, hard you to be, get. You got to have no nonchalance. Yeah, exactly. The nonchalance game. Yeah. Well, it worked. So there's so much that we could talk about with you. Let's start with um, what's going on right now. Of course, the danger in that is that it'll become out of date in about a second because things are moving so quickly. But can you kind of set us up, tell us what's happening, explain to non-jurists the significance of this whole Brett Kavanaugh, um, Michigas, if you will. I think that's the legal term for it. Yeah, I think Michigas is a very important legal term. It is. Um, and uh, he, he's going to have a Michigas about this for the rest of his life, I guarantee you that much. Yeah, so he deserves it. What's What's so amazing about this is, you know, when Justice Kennedy retired, um, it was obviously a really big deal because anybody who would be appointed to replace him was going to be a lot more conservative. I mean, Justice Kennedy was already incredibly conservative, and I am on record as not liking him as a jurist at all. Mm-hmm. So we but it was a big deal. Him. We shouldn't miss him. Good riddance. Yeah. Yeah, good riddance. Good yeah. riddance to Anthony Kennedy, I say. Yeah. Um, but not because I'm excited about his replacement. Right. So. Brett Kavanaugh gets nominated, and he's this dude really out of central casting, right? He would have been nominated by President Rubio or President Jeb or really anybody because he's just like the obvious guy, right? And with Republicans in control of the Senate, I sort of thought, well, done deal. Uh, That's the replacement. That's what it's going to be. I mean, he's even a former Kennedy clerk. And then all of a sudden, uh, almost like we've seen this somewhere before, after Mm. the committee hearings uh, happen— uh, we get this rather explosive allegation that he attempted to rape a woman in high school at like a party. And um, at first in the form of this anonymous letter and then in the form of her, she herself saying that this is what happened and uh, being willing to appear to testify before the committee. And the thing that I kept thinking about while this was happening was, you know, usually when there's one person there's not just one. Right. You know, like very rarely do people do this kind of thing and then just never do it again. Lo and behold, uh, is it turns out that there's another woman now from college, a woman named Deborah Ramirez, who says that a sort of different but equally, you know, bad thing happened with them in college. And then now you start to, to wonder, you know, how many people are really out there? And, you know, he denies all of this, but it's like, it's really uncanny because it's like watching the Anita Hill thing, except like I'm an adult now. 
Okay, I have a question for you. One of his um, defenses, Kavanaugh's defenses, has been that he was a virgin during high school, so he definitely didn't sexually assault anyone. I've never sexually assaulted anyone. I did not have sexual intercourse or anything close to sexual intercourse in high school or for many years thereafter. So Friends. you're saying that all through all these years that are in question, you were a virgin? That's correct. Never had sexual intercourse with anyone in high school? Correct. And through what years in college, since we're probing into your personal many life years, here? Many years after. I'll leave it at that. Many years after. So I feel like that's that's weird, but I'm not a legal scholar. So you as a law professor, can you tell us, is, is, is there some Latin word that like describes these defenses? Like um, Virginia... Exculpatoris. Yeah, yeah, Virginia exculpatoris. Yes, yeah, exactly. uh, that's not a thing it's because a thing. number okay. one, um, both of the assaults that are described don't involve having sex, and right. so you could actually do them as a virgin. In right. fact, that's what's I feel so great like, about them. Yeah, we know about incels now, um, and so like you know, I don't know, maybe Brett Kavanaugh was a high school incel. I, I have no idea, but they, like this is an attempted rape. And then, like, the pushing of his, like, penis in the face of this, you know, poor woman uh, who he was at Yale with, neither of those involve having sex. They have nothing to do with anything. So right. I would actually sort of believe it more from a frustrated virgin. But quite frankly, it has nothing to do with anything. Right. And yeah. um, another one has been that he did not put down the 1982 party in question in his calendar, which was <laughs> which he's yeah. kept because yeah. he's a normal person. That's not psycho <laughs> at all. That's, yeah, exactly. We're just getting some new reporting from the New York Times that Kavanaugh plans to submit a calendar from 1982 that he kept uh, with no such party marked on it. You know, as to the calendar thing, man, I got to say, like somebody being able to produce a detailed record of what they were up to in high school, like this many years later, I think that's actually independently disqualifying because you are not a human. You are right. an alien if you have right. that stuff. Yeah. Who keeps that kind of stuff? I couldn't tell you what I was doing in that level of detail like two months ago. Same. That's crazy. And that was in 1982, ladies and gentlemen. That's what he kept his, like, that just is a weird thing, like a psycho thing, like Norman Bates style thing. Like, who keeps a 1982 yeah. calendar? Well, even assuming it's like totally up to date and you like write down like, okay, like time to go to secret party and right. drink beer because, you know, Mike's friends or Mike's parents are out of town or whatever, right. which like, you know, look, I don't know how dedicated to record keeping you are, but um, I don't right. write that kind of thing down, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I also, I'm waiting for him to like his legal team to submit a, a vision board, which like yeah. doesn't yeah. manifest date, attempted date yeah. rape. Uh, exactly. So you see, here, here are my affirmations. Yeah, exactly. And none of it involved um, putting my genitals in someone's face. And right. so you see, I right. did not do it. Yeah. It's also kind of a pathetic thing to say. I mean, I guess the guy isn't running on for being spontaneous, but like you can, one can go to a, a party without planning it. Unless I guess. Yeah, I've is, heard does that. He, like put that, plug it back, like write it back in. After yeah, the I don't know. Do you go, do you go back and update the calendar with all the stuff you in fact did that day? Um, because that would be like, that would be weird, but I guess it's no weirder than keeping it, uh, the calendars right. for this many years. Right. Right. Um, and it's just, it's all part of it. It's a very strange sort of form of denial where he's like, you know, I didn't, I have no idea what party you're talking about, but I have proof I didn't go to it. Right. And then this is usually where the defenders take over and he says, I, and I didn't do anything like that, but then the defenders take over and they say, and even if he did, well, you know, boys will be boys. Right. Um, and so, it, I don't know, like, pick a lane, folks. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Let's pick a narrative. 
That's yeah. yeah. That's another thing. We're seeing like a beautiful dovetailing of um, uh, denial via virginity and calendar notes. And yeah. also it's no big NBD, hashtag NBD, no big deal if you try to assault someone. Um, yeah. Because that's what right. guys do in high school. Because that's what guys do in high school, which is like it's it's of course, those are obviously like contradictory at a really important level, but they're also sort of horrifying because right. I actually think that a lot of the men who are saying that do believe it. They're like, oh, I thought everybody did this when they were a teenager. And it's yeah. just like, no, it's just you psychos who have this like totally warped view of the world. You grow up to be the people you kind of are right now. Right. Uh, I believe you do that kind of thing in high school. But that's kind of the problem. Yeah. Oh, another. I don't want to leave out this other excuse, which is that he is like, as he liked to point out, as he pointed out the other day, he's a uh, was like busy going to church. Um, yeah, he's like really, he's a good Catholic. And it's like, how much longer is being part of? No disrespect, Ian. We'll get into this in a second. Uh, this is a Catholic yeah. friendly show, but like, how much longer is the Catholic Church allowed uh, going to be allowed to be used as an excuse for like not sexually assaulting someone? Like, I kind of feel like your association with the Catholic Church is not the best, not yours, Ian's. I mean, one's association with the Catholic Church is not the most exonerating thing. Well, it's clearly not inherently exculpatory because, look, I'll just I'll just say as the as the designated token Catholic on this show, mass is usually held more like at like. 10 a.m. in the morning and wouldn't preclude you going to a party at night. So, uh, you know, I was at church uh, isn't really like a, an actually an alibi. Um, and um, so that's not really how any of this works at all. So I don't really I mean, look, the, that's the, the entire kind of premise of the religion is that we routinely do terrible sins and oh, need right. forgiveness for them. Right? right. That's actually kind of baked right in. Right. So I, that's not actually an exculpatory anything. Right. That's a that's a reason that it would be he, he himself would regard it as bad if it happened. Right. That would be that would make sense. Is right. it sort of like, you know, kind of against the rules, uh, but otherwise doesn't make a ton of sense. Right. And you do have a mechanism built in, I believe, the confessional. Yes. Uh, right. And it involves admitting what you did, not right. just. Uh, so that, that's the thing that's blown my mind so much with all these people saying, well, you know, shouldn't this thing that happened a long time ago, is this really going to ruin this guy's life? And I'm like, look, I believe in forgiveness and I believe in rest- restorative justice. And, Same. you know, I believe uh, in all of those things for people who commit, you know, murder and assaults and all sorts of horrible things. But you do have to start by admitting that you did it. Right. And so if he if he didn't and he's saying he didn't, then that's one thing. Right. But that is totally incompatible with. Well, I did it, but I would like forgiveness. Well, you, you know, again, you got to pick a lane here. And right. He's picked the lane, and so I feel like his defenders have to stay in that lane. Right. And will it really ruin his life, or is this just uh, more that uh, it make disqualifies him from continuing to ascend in the ladder and become a Supreme Court justice? Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Is because the worst thing that's going to happen to him is that he will not become one of the nine most powerful lawyers on the planet Earth. Instead, he will remain among the, I would say, maybe 30 most powerful lawyers on the Mm -hmm. planet Earth. Um, And what I think that they mean when they say, oh, it's going to ruin his life, is it's going to spoil his destiny, Mm. right? That's what they mean, that that he is born to do this. And we cannot let this sort of knock him off uh, the, the track because this is how this story is supposed to end. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right at all. Um, right. There are plenty of people out there who, you know, probably thought the exact same thing about themselves in high school, and they ended up just being, you know, quote, just being really rich uh, law firm partners uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, vacationing on the, you know, 
wherever you vacation when you live in D.C. and you're real rich. So um, that's what I think they mean by ruin is spoil the story. It's almost uh, Calvin Calvinian with yeah, the predestination. Exactly. Exactly. There you it's go. Predestined. predestined. And it almost yeah. does feel that way. Um, and then but like all great stories about destiny, you know, you got to have kind of Chekhov's gun hanging on the wall in act one when he's at this elite high school. Um, anyway, it's kind of like it's almost sort of like in a way that uh, picking somebody from like this elite prep school who then became like a an Ivy League frat boy was not like the heads up choice at this particular moment in human history and political affairs. I don't know. Right. It's like in retrospect, it's almost like you could have seen this coming. Yeah, yeah. he's he's a creature of the swamp. And you'd think that, right, like, uh, yeah, everybody who aligned themselves with Trump or thought of this as an outsider's election year. Right. That's actually interesting because, yeah. like, okay, this is a fascinating. I never thought about this before. But who would be the most, like, on-brand, non-swampy judge? Because, like, the Supreme Court is inherently somewhat an, uh, an old boys network, right? Like, yeah. so what is the most non, like, non-insider-ish person that Trump could have even nominated? Are there like, what's a non-swampy Supreme Court pick look like from Donald Trump? Like if you could cast it, him or her. You've got, um, so Mike Lee's, I think his brother is on the like Utah Supreme Court. That's uh, what I like. And then you've got Mike Lee himself. Right. So oh, those right. people would be sort of kind of outside of the the sort of mainstream mainstream D.C. conservative legal establishment. But, um, it, you know, it gets it gets a little thin, actually, unless you want to really you know, like go totally outside the box and have like, you know, Chief Justice Omarosa or something. Right. But the, <laughs> I, I the like problem that. is the, the the gravitational pull of the sort of Federalist Society among you know, respectable Republican lawyers. It's like this is, you know, there is no alternative you know, there's there's no like alt fed sock. It doesn't exist. Right. And so, you know, you'd really be looking at that point to like a truly outside the box pick, like, a, you know, you know, you know, some prominent businessman or something uh, who is like maybe not even a lawyer. Or right. like, I guess I because there's, there's no requirement that they be lawyers. Right. Oh, so you really? can pick a. Yeah, no, of course not. I mean, they all have been. But, so Jeff you know, Bezos could become a Supreme Court justice. There you go. Right now. There you go. That's that's management thinking. Now, who would Trump pick like let's who do you think trump if he could have his druthers who do you think he would pick like anyone can answer this question by the way because since you don't have to be a lawyer to be a supreme court judge no disrespect Ian. i'm gonna say you don't have to be a, a law professor to answer this question so you and gabe can each have at it hmm i'll, I'll let gabe go first because i want to think about this one a little bit <laughs> all I right think, I, I know I, you I guys want like sw- to look i'd make my daughter the supreme court justice ivanka yeah. She's oh, beautiful. that's a good choice. Yeah. Oh, she's beautiful. She's easy on the eyes. Yeah. You know, I date. Yeah, her. yeah, 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 yeah. Guys, uh, I think that's a good one, and I'll I'll, I'll suggest a complimentary one, which is uh, Ivanka's husband. Uh, most people don't know, but she's actually married to this guy named Jared. Yeah. Uh, he actually is a lawyer, not one who is very distinguished, but who was a year ahead of me in law school. Oh. Um, so he actually even is a lawyer, uh, and then he would have to go away which probably I get the sense Trump would like. So there you go. He could be Jared. He could be Justice Jared. Oh, you mean his like romantic competition? The son-in-law that exactly. is his romantic competition Yeah, exactly. Get away? that guy, get him off reading the briefs and then it's clear sailing. Oh yeah, you're right. Wow. Well, Donald, we gave you two really great options. Um, yeah, you just keep think it about in the family. It. You yeah, know? keep it in the family. Yeah, the family. Wow. Exactly. I didn't even know you didn't have to be a Supreme Court judge. I mean, a, a lawyer to be a... 
Yeah, no, you don't have to be. The only uh, thing you have to be a lawyer for, I think in the United States, is to be the Solicitor General of the United States. You have to be a person learned in the law. Mm. Uh, but like traditionally, I think it's been true that all of the Supreme Court justices have been lawyers, but they haven't all been like practicing lawyers, right? Like Earl Warren was principally the governor of California uh, before Eisenhower nominated him to sort of eliminate a political rival in the Republican Party. So he was like a lawyer, but like, not really. Right. You know? I mean, he had a law degree, but like, you know, so what? Like Ted Cruz has a law degree. You don't think of him as like this big lawyer. I mean, but as as we all know, traditionally, yeah. But is what is Donald Trump if not an anti-traditionalist? I know. He well, he's not really thinking outside the box, man. He's dominating all these, you know, kind of fed sock, normal guys. Yeah. That's kind of disappointing, actually. Yeah. I was really hoping he would think big, but he's thinking totally normal. He's having a normal one. He's like. He's appointing a swamp creature, and he's supposed to be draining the swamp. Draining the swamp. A little bog beast that <laughs> yeah. came from Georgetown Prep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think? Can Can you talk a little bit about how this compares to the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings? As I mean, I know you were a yeah. kid at the time, as were as was I. But I was a big, I was an avid supporter of Anita Hill. Um, yeah, but yeah. Well, it's it's there's obviously some pretty clear similarities, but I think what's most interesting are the differences, right, which cut in different directions than you might think. So number one, people forget this, but the Democrats were like way in control of the Senate when Justice Thomas was nominated. Uh, they had like I think they had approaching 60 seats in the Senate. They had a really firm majority. And in fact, it is the last time that the Senate has confirmed a justice from the opposite party of the Senate. Uh, like since then, that is the last time that that's happened. Every time since then that a Supreme Court justice has been confirmed, the president and the Senate have been in the same party, which is pretty wild that first of all, it's been that long. And second, the last time it would happen was like one of the most controversial Supreme Court nominations of all time. Um, but like part of the reason that that happened was, you know, you had had Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court justice, uh, resigned because he was he was really not in very good health at all. And there was an overwhelming pressure to not let the court go back to being an all white institution, a very good pressure. Um, but given that George H.W. Bush was president, the ranks of like elite, well-qualified black Republican lawyers, like that's not a long list at the time. And, you know, it's not a super long list now, but it was really short then. And so you had uh, Judge, then Judge Thomas on the D.C. Circuit for a very short period of time. And the Democratic Party was kind of at these odd cross pressures where, you know, simultaneously, if you reject this, you know, this nominee, there's really no guarantee that that's not going to end up with like, OK, well, here's some, you know, white guy from like Georgetown Prep and Yale. Um, and at the same time, you have, you know, you're cross pressured because these allegations of uh, really serious sexual harassment are really bad. But it's also, you know, I think that all of the members of the Judiciary Committee then were men or at least the overwhelming uh, majority of them. Um, and this is the early 90s. So people are not exactly like woke, like, you know, Me Too is like, you know, 20 plus years in the future. So, um, so it's the same a little bit in the, that the timing, the, the timing is uncanny, right? That, that like, again, you have the hearings conclude and these really serious allegations emerge. I think the allegations here, I mean, that with Anita Hill, they were, they were very serious. These are even, you know, even more serious. They involve actual, actual physical violence. Um, so they're at least as bad and, and, you know, maybe even worse. It's crazy that they emerge 
in the same way after the normal hearings are sort of concluded and you have to convene everybody and, and call it all back. Um, but the differences to me are what's interesting because now the Republicans are in control. It's Chuck Grassley instead of Joe Biden. Uh, and actually Chuck Grassley and Joe Biden aren't actually acting that different from one another, uh, which is which is itself rather troubling. So um, it's it's really, it's, I, 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 it's this weird rhyming feature of history. You know what I mean? Like it's like that, but it's not quite like that. Right. And um, you mentioned Joe Biden, which is something I think a lot of people don't really know about. Can you talk a bit as someone who uh, one of the things we really appreciate about you is how fair and balanced you are. Um, don't pull pu your punches when it comes to Dems either. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden's role in the um, Thomas confirmation hearings? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, um I think it was Charles Ogletree who was Anita Hill's counsel, and, and Ogletree is a professor at Harvard. I think it was him um, who was her counsel at the time, and he's basically still mad at Biden. And I think that uh, Anita Hill's was also a law professor. I would imagine uh, she's also pretty uh, mad at him still because Joe Biden, for example, declined to call any witnesses other than Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas even though there were witnesses that she said would corroborate her account of what had happened when she was working at the EEOC with, ironic, with Judge Thomas, right? So there are these people who, who she said, look, they'll corroborate my account. They'll say and that he's he did all the stuff that I'm saying that he did, and Biden didn't call any of them. Uh, basically, it's a little hard to get an explanation from him sometimes about why exactly he did that. <laughs> he um, kind of goes but, off the rails in general about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a little hard to pin it down, um, but you know, basically, sloppy it's, Joe it's just came yeah, up with exactly. That. It's really hard to defend, and you know, his questioning of you know Anita Hill in particular is you know it's very strange if you sort of sit down and read it. Like I think it was Ogletree who said you know he was almost as bad uh, as the Republicans. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing? of all the incidences that you have alleged. But it's totally very strange and sort of hostile. It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. And then when he introduces, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas has these sort of famous remarks during that hearing where he says, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the US, US Senate rather than hung from a tree. Biden says, OK, you know, we'll now hear from sort of, you know, uh, Judge Thomas. And he he sort of remarks to him. He's like, you know, Judge, it's a tough day and tough night for you, I know. You know, I know this has been a, a tough night for you in this really like em empathetic way. And, and when you hear that now, you're like, uh, yeah, I guess it would be a pretty hard night for a very good reason. Like, you know, maybe your empathy is a bit misplaced here, Joe. I don't know. Um, so. He, as far as I aware, am aware, he has said things like "I owe her an apology" or things like that. But I don't think he's ever actually apologized. Um, and 
you know, to me, that's a bit of a serious problem because this is one of the most infamous failures in the confirmation process in like American history. And we kind of all just act like the whole thing never happened. It's very, uh, very weird. Yeah. So this would come back to bite him if uh, Joe Biden, Biden ran for president. Uh, oh, yeah. In 2020. Oh, I can't. I can't I that's the thing. That's why I don't take these Biden 2020 things very seriously, because it's like, yeah, I'm sure Joe Biden is really going to run for president in the Democratic primaries in like the Me Too era. Mm hmm. Yep. That's going to go great. Right. Like because <laughs> it's because it's not like he didn't already have two chances at this. And he wasn't like those were like really close calls. Right. He's run for president twice before. Uh, and he like came in like 19th place in Iowa both times and dropped out. So, you know, I don't feel like that's really going to be a real thing. So, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Right. I was just looking up the, the transcripts. He's like really um, passive aggressive. He just seems, he comes off kind of yes. like as a dick. Yes, exactly. Committee will please come to order. Yeah, there's this there's this weird section at the beginning where he's like, uh, like apparently Anita Hill's like family is kind of like trying to get into the hearing room where they're like waiting outside. Right. He's like, well, we could sit them down, but like all these people are sitting behind you. Like, do they really need to be sitting there? And I'm like, Joe, this is actually a, kind of a serious thing like could you it's it's just so disorientingly strange yeah the way he behaves in this hearing uh and there's no sense of like th there's no sense of gravity and there's also no sense that he remotely believes her right like yeah. he's asking all these questions like well did you guys sort of like you know w was this all these weird comments were, were like were they like related to what you were working on right it's like um uh no uh i don't i've i really don't know what you think goes on at the eoc it's actually kind of the opposite of this right. uh, ideally is the idea so um it's not good and it's a just a complete you know failure i mean and i think it's it, it really does demonstrate look at least everything is horrible most of the time but some things have actually gotten a little better right. and the way that the democratic party is treating um, the sort of, you, you know, Dr. Blasey Ford uh, and the other people who have come forward with these really serious al allegations is like markedly superior, although it's still not as good as it could be, uh, to where they were in the early part of the 1990s when they were like getting ready to like elect Bill Clinton. So, right. you know, I guess some things do slowly get better sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. He said, can we start already? Lord, let's not wait. Let's have every able-bodied person just grab a chair and bring it out. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice little, you know, anybody, anybody who's, uh, you know, if you're not able-bodied. Yeah, you know, I know. The hell with you. That's nice. I know. It's So he, like, also the ableism. So he's, like, double, yeah, it's a double no-no, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, so. Tag, tagging that in there. Yeah, it's so weird because, like, like, his lane, he, he really tries to play the, like, woke male ally. But I guess he's also really into um, punctuality. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he gotta, gets into a... It, it, this is important stuff. That the thing that's the thing that blows my mind the most is like he won't call these other witnesses, and you know the the sort of Republicans in the Judiciary Committee are saying something similar now. Like, well, we have to have the vote. We have to have the vote really fast. It has to be now. Like these people are going to serve on the Supreme Court presumptively for the rest of their natural lives, decades, right? right. Two or three weeks, one way or the other, in any sane process, ought to be just meaningless, right? Because who cares? Right. Oh, to, oh, he's going to miss the the sort of October arguments, um, he, you know, whatever. Like they can re-argue them later in the year or they'll just do it with an eight member court. Like you got to be kidding me with this. It's transparently connected to the sort of midterm elections, which is just about the worst reason in the world to kind of like hustle this stuff through. Right. It's pretty overt. Like it's pretty it's overtly overt. partisan. Yeah. 
you're, you've argued um, places including Hugger Carlson's show on Fox News. You said that basically if you're an innocent person, which is what uh, Brett Kavanaugh is claiming to be, he should be thrilled, <laughs> chomping at the bit to, to be investigated by the FBI. Uh, I'm summarizing yeah. and hyperbolizing a little, but not really. Not really. Professor, I'm glad you're here as a law professor. Um, I, I want to ask you about what Senator Gillibrand said today. She's a lawyer as well, I believe. And she said that the new standard is unless you call for an FBI investigation into yourself, you are by definition guilty. Is that a legal standard that you recognize? Well, what I like to think about is if I were, as Brett Kavanaugh says, an innocent man, and if I were falsely accused of something this serious, what would I want? And as I, and I teach civil procedure and I think about criminal procedure, and as I think through that question, what I would want is a process that was regarded as so fair, even by my ideological adversaries, that I would live the rest of my life being able to point to the process and say, we had this out, and everyone can agree the way we did it yes. was fair, and I was cleared. That's what I would want. I would want that too, and I think we would both agree that the first thing you would want in that process is a full explanation of what the charges are from the person who's making them. And he hasn't received that, none of us have. But barring that, and I'm not attacking her, though I think all of us should be distressed that she's not explaining herself, but that's not what Gillibrand said. She said, if you don't ask for an FBI investigation into yourself, that is an indication that you are guilty. And let me just suggest the obvious, which is that is insane. That is a third world standard. That is an un-American standard. And it's hard for me to believe that an elected U.S. senator would say something like that in public. She shouldn't say that innocent people have a moral obligation to call down upon themselves an FBI investigation. That's insane. Why doesn't anyone oh, stop I quite, say, I quite agree with that. Yes. But if I were an innocent man, I wouldn't think of it as my obligation, but rather my privilege. Well, I would I insist. Mean, I, I if I were Brett Kavanaugh, and if I were an innocent man, I would insist on well, pointing but, every camera on God's green earth in my face as I denied these allegations if I were an innocent I, man, I believe he's done, I want I believe, everyone to see it, wouldn't I you? Believe, I believe he's already done that. I think he's been the subject of six FBI investigations into his background, background checks by federal agents. And I believe he's testifying Monday, and he'll likely repeat what he's already said, which is, I don't know what she's talking about. I didn't do this. She, by contrast, who is the reason we're having this conversation in the first place, leveled a charge of felonious behavior against a public official and then has refused to explain herself. So where's the onus on her? She's dragged the whole country into this and short-circuited a process the rest of us are vested in and not bothered to explain herself? I know you're not supposed to, like, attack the victim, but at some point, she's not in charge of this country. So why can't we ask her for the full story? Well, I do think that the, look, the, as we say often in the law, the government is entitled to every person's evidence. And I do think it would be yes, very useful exactly. if she would testify. But again, just to keep with the frame a little bit, if I were Brett Kavanaugh, and if I were an innocent man, I would say, look, you don't want to testify on Monday. Take a week, take two weeks, take a month, because when this is done, and if I'm confirmed, I will not live my life under a cloud where people can say, well, the uh -huh. reason you got through is because we rushed it. Take a month. This is my but, life. But, but, That's but what, what I would do if uh, I were I understand, but then if you were facing opponents who publicly declared that you were guilty on the basis of no evidence and used as evidence the fact that you didn't request an FBI investigation into yourself, you would acknowledge you're dealing with unreasonable people who don't care about justice, who are merely trying to destroy your life for political ends, so maybe you'd behave differently, or am I being crazy here? Well, I don't know about that. If I were facing unreasonable people and if I were an innocent man, what I would say is, fine, you want to delay the hearing a month? Delay it. You want the FBI to look into it? Look into it. You want to interview Some this witness people in closed session? Can accuse in an open me session. anonymously. I'm an innocent of, man. Yeah, uh huh. 
Yeah, I wish we lived in a country. I'd be happy to participate in such a system. But when you have people saying what Kirsten Gillibrand said today or Congressman Garamendi said today, you're dealing with unreasonable people who don't care about justice. And it's scary. Um, and I know that you believe Prosecutors that. Prosecutors often don't. And that is why yeah, it would be important, I, agree. I would think, I in agree. his position, to position yourself as a person who says, these people are unreasonable. And the way I will prove it to you is I will give them everything they want and they will find well, I think he's nothing. doing that Monday. I'm an innocent uh, man, if right. I were an innocent man. I think that's the claim. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, so, like, uh, well, I think that's right. Like, look, obviously, as a general matter, if you're facing a criminal investigation, I think that you should sort of stand on your rights and, you know, just insist that, you know, you're not going to cooperate with the government. That's like the classic legal advice, and that's true. But this is a really special situation where if you're confirmed under this cloud of suspicion and you're confirmed under circumstances that your political opponents don't regard as legitimate, that's actually a problem for you for the rest of your life because they're going to keep believing that you did it. So if you're actually like imagine you're Brett Kavanaugh and you're like, look, I'm I'm actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just like I imagine I'm Brett Kavanaugh and I'm just like, oh, this is crazy. I'm drunk now. Uh, that's fun. Imagine imagine exactly. that. Um, and then and, and like you're totally innocent. You're like, man, this is like the, this is mistaken identity. The doppelganger did the first thing. And then the second thing, it was like somebody else. And then this other thing was like also different. Imagine that all that is is improbably true. I would actually really want to make sure that all the people who were inclined to believe that actually could see a process where that innocence was demonstrated like to their satisfaction. Because if it's not, right, like imagine it's not. And, and Brett Kavanaugh's confirmed, but like, you know, 45 to 48% of the country thinks that he did all this stuff. It's like, they're not just going to sit there and do nothing about it, right? Like I'm, I'm running around trying to figure out some way to convince these sort of centrist liberals that like you need to have more justices on the Supreme Court, that you need to pack the courts. Right. And I can't imagine a better way than to, for them to be like, well, you know, we had the Merrick Garland thing, which resulted in Gorsuch. And then Brett Kavanaugh was credibly accused of all these sex crimes, but nobody cared about it. And we had this process that was totally bogus. So Man, Ian, I guess you're right. I guess we should probably add some justices, like four to six, right? Like, and that, and if you're Brett Kavanaugh, that's horrible for you, right? That you right. are the the instrument of the destruction of the nine member court. Whereas if you're like, look, I'm going to show up to this sort of Senate confirmation room, uh, like every day at eight a.m. and I'll answer questions until there's no more senators there. And if the FBI wants to, like, you know, come to my house and you know interview me or whatever, like whatever you want to do, what you're not going to find is anything. You're not going to find any proof that I did any of this stuff because I know I'm an innocent man. Um, and I understand that you wouldn't do that in a normal criminal investigation, but this is not normal, right? This is this is a very different circumstance. And if I were innocent. I would want to clear my name, wouldn't you? I mean, these are incredibly, incredibly serious allegations, and I'd want people thinking that about right. me, right? That I that I did this horrible stuff. I would I would want the chance to prove that I didn't. Speaking of uh, the packing the courts, you wrote a piece this month, actually in September. Is Brett Kavanaugh the problem, or the U.S. Supreme Court itself? Are you Basically, a Kavanaugh you apologist? I'm not, I'm not. I'm not a Kavanaugh apologist. I mean, I think Kavanaugh is. Um, in terms of judges that might be plausibly selected by Republican presidents on the sort of jurisprudential merits, he's like, you know, normal, um, not not really extreme in one direction or another. Um, but the sort of argument of the piece is that we have decided for reasons that are a little hard to explain 
that a lot of the most important controversies in American political life are going to be settled by this, like, quasi-aristocratic, life-tenured group of lawyers who have no obvious expertise on these matters and who we have no political or democratic control over. And, uh, you know, once you decide to do that and have that basically aristocratic method of decision-making, you know, no kidding, it's going to advantage the aristocrats. Mm. Um, and so I think that the left or, or certain parts of the left tends to be attached to this vision of the court as a sort of champion of minority rights, right? They think about like Brown v. Board and like desegregation of schools, and they think about the abortion decisions like Rowan Casey, and they think about, well, you know, what about same-sex marriage, Obergefell right. and Windsor and cases like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's fine so far as it goes. And I'm not going to say that the, the Supreme Court has never done anything good. But what, what's striking is that with all of those things, right, you know, sort of racial justice, uh, abortion rights, um, you know, rights for same-sex couples, all of those things are things that you – that, like, can be achieved with political organizing um, and, like, building real political muscle, like, on the ground by organizing, you know, working people to do these things. And, in fact – there's pretty good evidence that the court was only willing to do that stuff once the re requisite political muscle was organized on the ground because it's not like the court can really force anyone to do anything. Mm. Whereas all the damage that they're going to do, right? So like in the Janus decision, when they decide to like, you know, try to basically assassinate public sector labor unions by denying them agency fees, you know, good luck organizing to change that result because now it's like a rule of constitutional law and right. you have to amend the constitution to do anything about it. And so it's really unclear to me why the left, who I would have thought believed in like the popular organization of the working class, is like so excited to assign the resolution of important controversies to nine people, like six of whom went to Harvard Law oh, School and three right. went to Yale Law School. Like, like why is this? Why do you want to do this? It's right. really unclear to me. That's interesting. I, I had a I just remembered in college I had this great history professor named Richard Van, who um I think was a kind of like um I mean he was left, but I remember him saying, like, well, what's so great about he was being provocative and I don't even know if he believed this or was just challenging us, but he was like, you know, what's so great about democracy? Like sometimes um it's better to have nine people in charge. You think like on and this was in I graduated in 03, so this was in two thousands. So he was like you think um, like with gay marriage or same-sex marriage, uh, the people would want to protect would would want that before the Supreme Court? Um, yeah. Well, here or yeah, protecting the minority is, is, rights, you know, as and yeah, and I remember thinking like, say, yeah, you're right? right. Democracy is kind of dangerous. We need a philosopher <laughs> king or queen. Yeah. I'll, I yeah I, exactly uh, volunteer myself, but yeah. Yeah, this is what people always say, which is like, well, if you assign. Uh, you know, if the people get to decide whether or not, like, for example, there's going to be like, you know, like abortion rights, right. then there's going to be like, you would have all these southern states where abortion was basically inaccessible to everybody except rich people who could afford to travel. And I'm like, are you hearing what you're saying? Do you not understand you are describing the world we live in yeah. right now? Right. Because over time, the like these nine lawyers who are very smart and they're, you know, they're, some of them are great writers. It's not like they have some army that can enforce these results. Right. And it's not like they have some ability to like buck popular will forever uh, mm. and they can't. And so what you really see is that they are downstream from like real political muscle. Um, and, you know, t the reason that they can mandate nationwide same sex marriage in Obergefell is because by that point, 
most people already wanted that, right? Like if right. you had taken a nationwide referendum the day Obergefell was decided and said, is the United States going to have uh, marriage equality or not? You know, marriage equality would have won. So it's like the Supreme Court wasn't really doing all mm. that much in these cases. And whereas they are very effective instruments of like capital, like they're very effective instruments of reinforcing the sort of existing political power structures that like are the thing you would want to popularly organize against in the first place, right? The Janus decision is a great example of that. Citizens United is a great example of that. And so, you know, this whole story that like, well, we need we need these wise aristocrats because that's right. the only way that, you know, you, you know, you can't possibly, after all, if you were a sort of, you know, eight-year-old black kid uh, living in the South hoping for, like, you know, good desegregated schools and voting rights, uh, how could you possibly complain about the results from the Supreme Court that you've gotten over the years, right? Like, no, that's crazy. They're, they're not, these these people are not going to save you. You mm. still have to do real politics. Right. Like, it's this faith in this anti-democratic magic that is going to rescue you from something, and it's not going to rescue you from anything. Huh. So are there any examples um, which doesn't undermine, which wouldn't undermine your argument anyway but i'm just curious are there examples where the, the supreme court has been ahead of the curve there there are examples where they've been ahead of the curve i think probably the most significant one is actually roe v wade where mm. there was you know there was a, a growing desire in the united states for more liberalized abortion laws and the texas law at issue in roe was quite extreme it was one of the most extreme in the country and so one of the things that actually Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has argued is that the court in Roe, by announcing this sort of nationwide, you know, quite inflexible rule uh, that was back then a trimester system, like you can do this in the first trimester, this in the second, this in the third, got way out ahead of public opinion and could have just said this extreme Texas law goes too far, uh, but we're not going to necessarily decide that th there's going to be some sort of, you know, constitutional code of abortion for the entire country. And she's argued that they went a little too fast on that. But the the thing is, yeah, they got out ahead of public opinion. And we have spent like the last 40 to 50 years paying the price for it because they were so far ahead of public opinion oh. that it galvanized like a generation of anti-abortion activists who coalesced around the Supreme Court as their like central issue. And like they are the reason that Trump got elected president because they were like, look, we don't like a lot of this stuff, but we understand that we are like these committed activists on abortion. And he is going to appoint, you know, the Federal Society judges that we have been informed that we want. And so that's that's how that's the way to win. So like, you know, there is a price to be paid for these things and these compromises, you know, getting out of the head of the curve is not like stable, right? right. Because eventually the, eventually the people are going to have what they want, right? Mm -hmm. There's no way that nine old lawyers are going to stop them from having what they want forever. There's no way. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So you think that like, so what would you do? Cause uh, this is another question. Like you are a law professor, but you're also uh, a socialist. Yeah. Uh, and are, you know, believe in organizing. So, like, what do you think people should be doing at different levels? What do you think organizers should be doing? What do you think lawyers or uh, should be doing? Like, how should be, people be mobilizing around this uh, nomination? Yes. So around the nomination, I think I'm actually pretty impressed that. Um, so to take that in 
several stages. You know, number one, I've been I was very impressed that there was a lot of popular organizing around opposition to like the Kavanaugh nomination, even though everyone said, oh, it's a done deal. Right. Right. And it did feel like it was a done deal, but there was enough popular organizing that Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee and also in the broader Senate weren't able to just sort of get on board and be like, oh, he's this well-qualified man, which created the space for something to happen, mm. right? Like those organizers understood perfectly well that they're not going to organize the Republicans into voting no. Right. But they can at least maybe create a space where like, who knows, something could happen in the committee, something, a document could come out or, you know, lo and behold, some allegation from when he was younger. If they hadn't done that, then we're probably not in the situation that we're in. Um, but I think in terms of a sort of long-term strategy for the left, you know, usually when I talk to other um, you know, especially young socialists, like the courts are not a big part of their strategy for change. And I think that's quite appropriate. That the best thing that, you know, the, the minimum what you'd hope from the courts is that they would get out of the way, mm -hmm. right? Like there's not a big role for the courts in like abolishing ICE or creating Medicare for all uh, or doing, you know, universal public, uh, you know, college or things like that. Like the courts are just not positioned to do something like that. Everything that the sort of organized socialist left wants is stuff you have to do with legislation. And that's good. That's great. So all we want is the courts to sort of stay out of the way. Mm. But you can have the courts in a sort of intermediate position of like, you know, reinforcing, for example, sort of like left-leaning power structures or at least not attacking it, right? Like that's the whole project of the sort of anti-union cases in the court right now is that like, especially Justice Alito understands really well that, you know, organized labor is an important source of political power on the left. And so if you can break it using Supreme Court decisions that'll be enforced, then, you know, that doesn't, you know, double ice or anything, but it eliminates right. a sort of like major oppositional force that will, you know, then clear the way to achieve whatever the substantive goals are. Um, and so I think some con contrary project like that uh, could be really valuable. Uh, but at the moment, and, you know, and until the courts are enlarged, uh, the left is going to be playing defense. And um, so I think any strategy for the political left that relates to the courts is like, well, you got to start by adding justices because otherwise I don't understand what the idea is here at all. Right. So uh, packing the courts. Um, okay. You reminded me of uh, how the, one of the big refrains about like the significance between the different, the significance of the difference between Democrats and Republicans. You hear this a lot. Like, look at the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's often used as a kind of not overtly, but it maybe functions as a break. Like mm -hmm. it puts the brakes on certain things because I mean, this is a, like a huge question that requires a lot of unpacking. But whatever, you're, that's what you do for a living. So I can ask you this. How kind of like kosher a question or framing is that like that because of Supreme Court nominations that really I mean, this gets into organizing and electoral politics, too, but like. How much of a good like motto is that for um, supporting Democratic uh, nominees? I guess well, it's kind of a hard question. It's like a lot it, of it is. It is a hard question, but I do think it exposes like a basic asymmetry, right? Mm -hmm. Like what what I think the right wants to do with the courts is they want to use the courts to sort of shut down the left's political program which will mostly be exist in the form of legislation, right? And it's a very natural sort of thing to do because it's like, oh, no, look, we have this elite institution uh, filled up with, uh, you know, elite educated lawyers and things like that. 
what the Democratic Party has basically been doing with regard to the Supreme Court for a very long time is they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to say, we're going to shut down the rights political program. But the only thing that they can really point to is the political program on the right of enacting restrictions on abortion and perhaps enacting some restrictions on the rights of like same-sex couples and things like that, right? Because that's their only political program that the left is interested in using the court to sort of guard against, right? And maybe some stuff in terms of, you know, voter ID or partisan gerrymandering, things like that, but that doesn't even seem to be successful at all. And so I think what the left would do a lot better for themselves to say is, um, what you know, kind of what FDR used to say, which is like the Supreme Court is this meddlesome force in American life, and what we want is popular democracy. We want is to rule ourselves, and so what the right wants to do is they want to use this this sort of aristocratic institution to achieve all the aims they can't win at the ballot box. And what we would like them to do is we would like them to get the hell out of the way and let us enact our program. I think to, that to me is a lot more appealing because it sounds in something that people actually want, which is like self-government. Um, but like the right doesn't have to do that because like their essential base uh, are people who are completely comfortable with sort of like non-democratic forms of government, right? Like nobody who is opposed to labor unions is going to wring their hands uh, if the Supreme Court kills them off. Like they don't care, right? These people, you know, they're capitalists, right? They understand they're outnumbered. Their entire project is to figure out how to win in a world where workers outnumber them 99 to 1. Um, so they have no problem with that, but it's not symmetrical. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, any any things you want to plug? Yeah, so uh, I suppose if you've enjoyed me, uh, check out uh, my uh, Supreme Court podcast, which is called First Mondays. Uh, and so it's just, it's, uh, you know, on the iTunes store and everywhere else you might find uh, your fine uh, podcast. It's just called First Mondays. And it's about the weekly business of the Supreme Court. And so we are about to launch our new season. Uh, we have actually just launched the sort of preview of our new season because uh, the court's going to be back in session, talking about Kavanaugh stuff, talking about the cases, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, and I come off as sort of a measured kind of person on that show. Uh, and if you would like some unmeasured stuff, uh, then you can check me out on Twitter, which is just at iSamuel. Uh, and that's really the that's that's the real unmeasured hours. Great. And yeah, you we can now you you are now officially the Katie Helper show uh, legal correspondent. Ooh, you passed the test. Nice. I'm going to put that on so, my uh, I'm going to put that on my CV. Yeah, you should on your business cards, too. Yeah. So that's a lot better than becoming a Supreme Court justice. So, yeah, a hell of a lot better. Well, thanks there for having go. me. It's been really right. it's been really great to be here. Uh, a long term ambition of mine finally fulfilled. And I hope to return very soon. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, I'll go to law school so I can go on to yours. That's really the real reason. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could. First I mean, Monday's fame. That's just day one of 1L. You're on the show. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Okay. Thank you so much, Ian Samuel. All right. Thanks for having me, Katie Helper. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. You can hear it at the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBI. That's 99.5 FM, WBI.org. what it was like for him to clerk for Antonin Scalia. Become Patreon members at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much.